When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. Ian, this is the last episode of the first series. Why are we talking about neoliberalism? Because we're still suckers for punishment. Um, it, and this, you, you know what? You know what? For a while, this for me was like woke was. There was a while where I was like, oh, if someone says neoliberalism, it's just going to be an utter load of old hogwash. And then after a while, I kind of did stop fighting it because there are respect. It's, it's ultimately not like woke. There are respectable people who use it. There's some that use it. That's a positive, but many, many more who use it as a negative. And it's, you know, fronting respectable, decent work. Um, It has, however, become predominantly a slur directed by socialists at anyone from the pretty meaty centre left (laughs) over right to the sort of far right. Mm. Because I I was like you, I was somebody who became so dismissive of it because it seemed to just be used as an insult. And it seemed to be so broad brush that it just seemed to describe, you know, like all, you know, all capitalism, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I um, read a book by the academic Will Davis, whose speciality is the history of neoliberalism. And there's actually a very good reading list that he put online. And when I started thinking about it more as something with an intellectual tradition, with arguments inside it, with actually quite a dramatic arc, Mm. as we'll get to, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it is an amazing, even if you're not a fan (laughs) of of the outcomes, you know, it it is almost a kind of like the, the drama of the rise of that idea. Um, is fascinating. The individuals involved are fascinating. And it was one where I, I realized, and it's one of the impulses for doing this whole series, was, okay, what were the words that I just wasn't, that had become so degraded that I wasn't even asking the right questions about them? I was like, oh, you know, that again. Mm. And those are the ones where, where actually, no, you, you should make an effort to try and understand, okay, well, what what does this word mean? What did, you know... Who created it? What are the consequences of neoliberalism? What And so then you can use it accurately. So rather than running away from it, you know when there's certain words that you, you keep misspelling or mispronouncing, right? And you just avoid them, don't you? So rather than just like looking up, okay, how do you pronounce this word? You just avoid it completely because mm-hmm. you're just like, better not take that risk. And I felt like intellectually I was doing that with neoliberalism. I was like, I don't... I don't quite see what all of these different uses of it, I don't see what they cohere into. Um, And this was a chance, I think, to to sort of really understand what it is. 
one of the problems I find with it when I see it used is that it, it can be applied to both sort of General Pinochet mm-hmm. and Barack Obama. <laughs> and Tony Blair. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like it's both something appalling and extreme and something which seems to apply to the leaders of most Western countries for the last 40 years. And that, I suppose, is where I sometimes find it confusing. It's like, well, they can't all be the same. And, and, and as we'll discuss, even the people who kind of created neoliberalism, they didn't agree with each other. Mm. And so it seems to become the more people you use it about, the more useless it becomes. And maybe rather than talking about people per se as neoliberals, it makes more sense talking about neoliberalism as this sort of hegemonic, so I'd be all jargony about it, but you know, something that is so <laughs> dominant that it's just sort of the water you swim in. And so you don't have to be a neoliberal per se to be operating within the kind of parameters of it. The ism is definitely much more helpful than the ist, yeah. right? But there is a similarity in the thoughts of those three people you just described, you know, Blair, Obama, and Pinochet. And it's obviously, it's not to say that there's any moral similarity between Obama and Pinochet, but some of the basic economic assumptions and the political grounding they had as to how we treat the economy did share similarities, right? right? And so on that basis, it's not completely unreasonable to use it in that way. Well, it's sort of sloppy, and I guess it is unhelpful, but not necessarily unreasonable. But that's, I suppose, where we talk about the ism more than the individual, is that's maybe when you get away from it being a slur. Mm-hmm. It's just calling someone a neoliberal. A lot of times it doesn't really get you anywhere, unless it's like Milton Friedman. <laughs> and yes, then which it's it like, really does. Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. <laughs> There's a, I mean, ultimately, at the heart of this story, I think, there are a set of ideas. You know, and they're an old set of ideas and they're updated in various modern ways, but there's a set of ideas. And I think as you look at the story, as it comes out, what you see is that there is something internally contradictory and flawed about these ideas. Yeah, yeah. And that they produce outcomes. I think these outcomes are the fetishization of economics yeah. to the exclusion of all other political concerns. A kind of atomized view of humanity as these economic agents and really very little else. A suspicion of the state that means that you can't ultimately use it to do anything. So you can't really solve very many problems in society. An aversion towards looking at structural problems in society, whether it's sort of racism or economic disadvantage or or mental health problems. And that consistently, when you adopt it, it produces these really ghastly outcomes and, funnily enough, very authoritarian outcomes. Because you can't question the neoliberal commitment to liberty. They are, just like all liberals, committed to liberty. But the outcomes that they get at the end are always really very authoritarian. And I do think there's a reason for that. So when you tell the story, it's these flaws. But ultimately, weirdly enough, it is the story of the world that we live in, of the countries that we've lived in over the last few decades and now. But those paradoxes are so glaring, Mm. you know, and they depart so much from some of the original ideas i don't want to be kind of like real sort of into like you know indie label neoliberalism (laughs) but but like a lot of things you know when it starts off there are much more sort of i mean i must say in my research here it's like i'm I'm not a fan (laughs) of neoliberalism but some of the ideas of the kind of the originators you know some of those are more sorts i find more sympathetic more relatable but not what it became and of course some of these originators actually didn't endorse what it became but the other words that we've discussed in the series developed in this sort of ad hoc way. But neoliberalism, the word, was coined by the people who founded neoliberalism, the idea, which is very considerate of them, <laughs> even though the idea evolved. Now, let's turn to the OED, and it's quite confusing. Okay, so the definition is fine. Neoliberalism, of relating to or characteristic of any of various modified or revived forms of traditional liberalism, Ugh. typically based on belief in free market capitalism and the rights of the individual. 
The term has been applied variously to centrist, left of centre and right-wing political standpoints at different points of time and in different countries, generally depending on whether the emphasis is on economic or social liberalism. Okay, fair. That's a bit better. This seems like an entry that took quite a long time. It took a few drafts, <laughs> a few qualifications there. But annoyingly, because it's the OED, they're often their first citation is not what we now mean by it. Mm-hmm. So in another episode, when we're talking about superheroes and superheroes used during the Dreyfus affair. It does not mean that somebody could fly. <laughs> it just meant that somebody was very heroic. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But that still comes in under superheroes. So here for neoliberal, we get from 1898. Oh, wow. A reference to the neoliberal school from 1930. Neoliberal itself from 1921. Neoliberals Hobhouse and Hobson. Hmm. But they all mean different things. They're not very helpful. So what they don't mention, because it's not an official citation, like it's not in a public journal, hmm. is the guy who invented the word. Mm-hmm. So in 1938, the French philosopher Louis Rougier organized the colloque Walter Lippmann in Paris in honor of the American journalist who had just published in French an inquiry into the principles of the good society. He was a huge critic of the New Deal. Hmm. I mean, this is a kind of founding principle, isn't it? You know, yeah, the New Deal. Yeah. People at the conference included Friedrich Hayek, Michael Polanyi, and Ludwig von Mises. Oh, the whole Justice League of neoliberalism. <laughs> and the German economist Alexander Rusto coined the word neoliberalism, although alternatives were thrown about. Individualism, positive liberalism, sounds great, hmm. and even left-wing liberalism. Oh, wow. Which is well, That's just wild. level. <laughs> so, obviously, neo... Like as somebody, you know, as, as a sort of former music journalist, I'm used to kind of people just going, oh, a new, new, new wave, new rave, <laughs> new folk. That's what you do when you can't think of a new name. You get an old name and you put new or neo on it. Mm. It would have been better if it was NU liberalism, NU dash liberalism. <laughs> but anyway, so what did, what did Rustam and those people mean when they said neoliberalism? What was the old liberalism What were they taking and what were they changing? I don't think that at that stage, there is later, I don't think that at that stage there's much that's new at all, except for the conditions in which they're operating. So you have the old classical school of economics, we're going to talk about that in a second. And then you have just this very new scenario, especially after the end of the Second World War, but even before that, as soon as the New Deal was there, of just looking around you and you're like, well, you've got, this is the three versions of big state, right? You've got fascism, you've got communism, and you've got social democracy, basically the the beginning of the, you know, the New Deal and then sort of liberal societies deciding we're going to intervene in the market. They're like, well, we need to have some kind of response to this. And that predominantly, I mean, when you look at the, the kind of people, look at, take Hayek, who's there. Hayek, you know, is born a few months before the 1800s turns into the 1900s, just at the turn of the century, and feels all the way through his life that he's living in the wrong century, that he was born like 100 years too late. Right, that he right. Was fit. He, to him, it's just... He's never thinking about it that it's really new in any way. It's just like, no, return to the good old stuff. You know, the stuff that worked for us yeah. before. So I think really it's the circumstances that change. And then a little later, as we'll talk about with Friedman, that there is a new kind of economic assessment, predominantly through monetarism, that comes in that, that is quite different. But ultimately, politically and predominantly economically until the 60s, it's pretty much just classical economics. So is this just, you know, a renewed belief in, in Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market? Yeah, or, and a demand that people go back to it. We Mostly when they talk to each other, like, you know, we'll talk a bit about Mount Pellerin soon. When they talk about each other, they're like, we were the last liberals left standing. Mm. To them, the whole mm. post-war order that takes over, of we're going to intervene in the market now. To them, it's just like, well, you just betrayed liberalism, rather than this is an internal debate within liberalism. Yes, because, I mean, the founding principle here is that economic liberalism 
is the thing from which all other economic freedom is the one from which all other freedoms yes. flow. Turns out not to necessarily be the case. But th- <laughs> this is this is what they're saying. It's like if unless you've got the free market, you don't have a liberalism. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how tolerant you are of people or whatever. It's, it's, it's all irrelevant. So we've got the war intervened. Not many collocks for a while. <laughs> and then the Lippmann fan club, essentially, <laughs> um, reconvenes in Montpellerin, uh, again near Geneva, in 1947, leading to the Montpellerin Society. Three of the people there were Austrian emigres. Austrian School of Economics was very, very sort of free market. And there are these three founding texts come out in 44 to 45. The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper, Bureaucracy by Ludwig von Mises, and The Road to Serfdom by Hayek. I can tell you now that only one of these books is worth reading, and it's the first one. It's the first one. <laughs> I have read The Road to Serfdom, actually. Oh, it is batshit. It is quite, quite far well, out there. Like... Well, there, there, are some, there are some good bits, and the good bits are the bits that you sort of, anybody, you know, rational would probably have said in 1945. Mm. Totalitarianism. It's awful. <laughs> And we should have more freedom, right? That bit, it's like that's the sort of the basic idea where you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you going with this? And you go, oh, oh, no. Oh, you're going over there. Because they're, they're all rejecting what they call collectivism, which is a nice way of covering everything from Stalin to, to Roosevelt. But they don't all agree with each other. So Popper actually wanted, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to his book than mm-hmm. what is relevant here. But he wanted a broad church, which actually included socialists, a sort of progressive alliance. And he said in the 90s, shortly before his death, well, I do believe that in a way one has to have a free market, but I also believe that to make a godhead out of this principle of the free market is nonsense. Humanitarianism, that is of fundamental importance. What you've just said is, is probably the neatest and most elegant encapsulation of the next 50 minutes right. of talking that I want to do, really. But also I think the word godhead mm. is beautifully put and a really useful one to keep in mind as you think about the way that these guys become enraptured at the sort of altar of the market. Because you can see some of these guys like Michael Polanyi, Hungarian hmm. emigre. He says that with, with capitalism, sort of unbound, freedom thus degenerates into a mere advocacy of free enterprise, the fullness of freedom for those whose income, leisure and security need no enhancing, and a mere pittance of liberty for the people who may in vain attempt to make use of their democratic rights to gain shelter from the power of the owners of property. So again, going, well, you know what? Like, there are, it's not just about economic freedom. And so at this stage, there is a general understanding, there's a lot of disagreement in the group, but there's a general understanding there's some role for state aid, social safety nets, things like that. And you see that in, in Risto, the guy who coined the word, it was very influential in the social market economy that rebuilds Germany after the war. And these are called ordo liberals, huh. not a phrase we use much more, after the, the journal ordo. Okay. So that was kind of the German, like neoliberalism became this international sort of alliance, but there were these, it was quite distinct at that point. It was like, okay, here's the German version. And then here's the American version. And what's interesting in terms of, oh, so relative to our episode about centrism, is Milton Friedman, who is the key American neoliberalism mm-hmm. from the University of Chicago, described neoliberalism as a middle road between collectivism and laissez-faire. It's not the same as laissez-faire. And he, was, he thought the competition was so great <laughs> that it would protect workers, consumers, and citizens in general. Like he had a way that's just like, well, everybody wins. From competition. He didn't even believe in sort of certificates for doctors or for pharmaceuticals. 
So it's really like when you go into the market side, yeah, you, yeah. you go pretty deep with him. He's just like, no, oh, you know, so this guy chopped up your auntie, didn't know what he was doing. It just means the market now realizes he's not a good doctor and no one will go back to him. You're like, really, mate? Are you sure that this is how far you want to go? Because I kind of would prefer a system where my auntie's less likely to get chopped up in the first place before I realize a doctor isn't up to it. The principles, though, the, the idea that you have is this sort of, I mean, is it naivety? Where he's going, well, obviously, thanks to competition, that will protect workers' rights because if workers aren't being treated well, they'll simply go somewhere else mm. and get a better job. Like, <laughs> so you, don't, you don't really need unions because of competition. So as we'll see, some cracks in that. And and reading about these characters, it's quite fascinating. It's always fascinating, isn't it? These groups of intellectuals arguing with each other. Mm. And von Mises mm. is the hardcore one. Mm-hmm. And he said to Hayek, there is no middle way. Either the consumers are supreme or the government. And for him, the, the only role of the state, the role of the state was like law and order, defence, money supply and preserving property rights. Mm-hmm. It is like the most stripped down version of the state imaginable. And we should mention, I mean, he's kind of the godfather of all of these guys. You know, he's from, he's much older. He's from a period Right, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's the, he's the main influence He was coming up in the Hayek. 1920s. I mean, this is it. Mm-hmm. He was saying this stuff before the Great Depression. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, way before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mont Pelerin's founding statement is very exciting. The central values of civilization are in danger, and it's all about protecting the individual and the voluntary group and human dignity and freedom. Mm. Which, again, in 1947, you can just go, well, fair, fair play. Like, yes, we should probably take measures, you know, to avert totalitarianism. But what you're saying about how economics is everything... As a quote from from Hayek, which which resums this up, economic control is not merely control of a sector of human life which could be separated from the rest. It is the control of the means for all our ends. Mm -hmm. And there is something totalizing about this idea that there is not the economics. Because even now, even having lived with neoliberalism so long, we talk about economics. It's like, okay, well, here are economic issues and here are like culture war issues. Yes. And they're kind of separate. And they go, okay, well, you can appeal to these, you know, the whole thing about building a coalition like Johnson or Trump and you go, you appeal to them on the economics and them on the culture. Yeah, yeah. And of course, for someone like, you know, Hayek, it's like, well, what are you talking about? There is nothing but economics. There's certain times that he feels almost like he's going through some kind of like a religious experience. You know, I mean, for Hayek, for it's worth mentioning, the market is unknowable. It's almost like the hand of God. Mm. You know, he, do, he doesn't believe, and this is the difference between him and Friedman, he, don't believe, he doesn't believe that you can ever really understand the market. Just partly an economic argument for him as well. Because you can't understand it, there's no point trying to interfere because you're always going to produce outcomes that you didn't intend to. But it's more than that. It's just like this fundamentally unknowable force. It's so big and vast. It's worth mentioning, by the way, he never actually worked in the market. He, he never worked in the private sector. There was one point in New York where for a couple of hours, it looked like he was going to have to work in a kitchen, but then he manages to get away from it. So there's not a single, a single cent that he ever made that was in the private sector. You know, it was always in academia. This is a recurring theme. They never have any real experience of it. And I sometimes think that that's not just a funny nugget. I sometimes think maybe if they could have seen, anyone who's had a bit of experience of the private sector will see the inefficiency and waste. Right. That happens all the time, you know. But it is, it, it is, an, it is an academic idea. Mm-hmm. It is, fundamentally. In, in, yeah. in, in its origins. So let's just go back to look at what their fundamental ideas actually were, right? So at the origin of all this stuff, and indeed at the sort of general Western conception of economics and arguably the world, is Adam Smith, who was born in Kilcuddy, Scotsman, 1723. And this is the first of a series of three great myths 
that I see in neoliberalism. The first is about Smith in the, in the 1700s. The second is about the Great Depression in the 1920s. And the third is about what happens in the financial crash in 2008. And mm. these three great sets of myths, I think, are what explains the political success of neoliberalism and also some of its sort of fundamental flaws. Let's lay out Adam Smith's economics for how they understand it. Okay, And it's predominantly through a book called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Usually we just say Wealth of Nations, published in 1776. At the heart of it is a view of mankind as this sort of self-interested economic unit. And he says, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never talk to them of their own necessities, but of their advantages. This is a view of like, look, we're selfish. We want stuff. We want to pay as little for it as possible. We want to get as much for the stuff we have to sell as possible. And that creates this dynamic called supply and demand. Supply and demand essentially operates. I know this, this sounds basic, but I think we're, we are going to talk a bit of economics in this podcast, so let's make sure we know what we're talking about. If there's a bunch of people that want something, let's say it's like a Nike trainer, and there's very little of it around, there are lots of people that want it. That's demand. Supply is, in this case, defined by scarcity because there's very little of it. The price will go up. Other people will look at that and go, look at how much money you can make selling these trainers. So, okay, fine. So we're going to start doing it. There'll be more supply. And then eventually the price will start going down. This is supply and demand. It provides data. It provides information about scarcity. And I think ultimately that view of supply and demand and of the selfishness of the price point where two individuals meet and they agree a price becomes this utterly fetishized, almost religious moment for the guys that we're going to talk about. Mm, it's this mm, one pure, mm. understandable thing mm. that's real in a world that's terribly confusing. And Smith has a few other bits. I mean, one of them is that you need to balance your budgets, which is a nation should act like a household. This, oh. as, as you know from our life, it's going to become very pertinent. Oh my God, <laughs> Shouldn't yeah. be borrowing too much, et cetera, et cetera. Not more than, than you're spending. There should be low taxes. And therefore, because of the supply and demand mechanism, because of the way that the selfishness, this is done, you know, through the, the, met the most famous metaphor in economics, the invisible hand, you know, mm. that the person goes in selfishly. He's not trying to achieve this perfect state, but he does so anyway by virtue of his own selfishness. The state needs to get out of the way of the market. There's a couple of things that make this funny. And this is, where I think, where the great myth comes up. The first one is that Alan Smith didn't believe in this view of humans. He was talking about economic activity. The second thing is the role of the state. He gives it three roles. You know, fine, the market's there, but you've got to have the state do some stuff. First one is defense, you know, external barriers against invasion, etc. The second one is sort of internal justice, you know, dealing with property disputes or maybe murder or whatever else. But the third one's interesting because the third role of the state is to deal with market failure. This is not a view of the market as perfect at all. He says, public works and certain public institutions, which it can never be in the interest of any individual or small number of individuals to erect and maintain. These right. are the things you interfere with. And he's talking about canals. He's talking about schools, by the way, free schools, or at least schools where you pay very little so that the poor can go to them. The building of roads. These things won't be done by the market and can't be done by the market. Now, you fast forward hundreds of years. And you get to the Great Depression. So we're in 1929. And this is important because the, the Great Depression becomes the sort of foundational moment for neoliberals really in the 20th century. Loads of the debate that takes place, whether it's in the 30s, the 40s, whether it's in the 60s, whether it's in the 70s, even in the 90s, is about analyses of the Great Depression and what happened. Well, this is where I got quite confused because the version that I learned at school and, and really haven't had any cause to <laughs> revise in all my sort of subsequent reading mm. was that, you know, there was this massive market failure. 
Yes. And initially the Republican presidents were just incapable of doing anything about it. And the New Deal comes in and realises that through kind of like, you know, Keynesian stimulus and other mechanisms and, and, you know, building up all these new institutions of the state, you know, it got America the world, you know, out of this hole. And that this was one of those cases in history where it was just like, this was the right economic medicine for this sort of terrible illness. Mm. And yet the neoliberals are looking at that and actually looking at the economic recovery brought about by the New Deal Mm. and going, oh, well, they fucked this up. (laughs) Like, I find that, (laughs) I find that weird like what did they think was what do they think was going so wrong the the view from Keynes and and the the one that's taken on in general Keynes a sort of English economist and and the view of a kind of economics that doesn't interfere in the market was it's a failure of aggregate demand you've basically got banks collapsing people won't put their money into banks so they start hoarding it and suddenly there's just this there's just no demand in the economy for a very very long time and this sort of shudders out it hits Germany Germany you know, doesn't quite elect the Nazi party, but the Nazi party get into power on the back of it. And then you start seeing something very interesting, something that Keynes never forgot, which is that lots of these economic effects went away when people started preparing for war. Because suddenly they start pumping money into the economy in the form of the military machines Mm -hmm. that they needed. His conclusion was, if we can do it for war, we can do it for peace. You know, we can create demand by the state by building roads, cinemas, housing, whatever. Hayek's view is different. Hayek, he's born, like I said, 1899 in May. Austrian. When he was growing up, he saw the effects of hyperinflation on his family, on his country. I mean, hyperinflation is really when the world loses all meaning. It's just chaos. It's a jungle. And he was obsessed with inflation throughout his life, really. A big part of this story is the relationship between inflation and employment. It is, am I right? It's really what you prioritise that there was for a, for a long time, particularly the, the post-war consensus then, was you prioritise because of the horrors of mass unemployment during the 30s. You prioritise full employment, however you define that, yes. you know, even if that means inflation. And the neoliberals are just like, the real curse is inflation, and you control that even if it means quite a lot of unemployment. I, that's exactly right. That's beautifully put. And I mean, look, you can imagine Hayek there in his youth seeing the effects of inflation. Inflation you know, is when things become more expensive. And a certain amount of it we accept, 1%, 2%. Sometimes it goes way off the scale. We're currently living in a period of very high inflation, and that's a major political concern. And it makes poor people poorer. It makes life worse for everyone when it runs at that sort of extent, and certainly when it runs at the extent that he saw growing up. Keynes saw men on the slag heap, you know, just dumped, thrown away, you know, men that could be doing good work, that could work for the economy and just thought of the human waste. And that emotional impact on the two of them was part of their clash. Highest thing was you always control inflation. Keynes' argument was, look, when you've got employment, for employment, things will get a bit more expensive. There is a relationship between inflation and employment. You know, the more people employed, the more demand, the prices will go up a bit. But it's fine. It doesn't matter because everyone's employed. It's sort of okay. The real dangers is when he switches into the politics. He writes a book called Road Serfdom that we've mentioned. And this really, most of his stuff is bone dry economic stuff. I mean, he's a, he's a very distant, awkward figure, intellectually and personally. And he writes this book, but it really takes off in the States and it's extremely excitable and, and emotional. And it becomes one of the founding texts for sort of free marketers in the US and the UK. There's a few problems with it. The first one is he talks, and this is crucial to, to I think, their whole view of politics. He talks of this thing called the slippery slope. Basically, whenever there's a bit of state interference in the economy, you're on the slippery slope towards totalitarianism, towards Hitler, towards Stalin. 
Um, and you will hear that all the time. I've, we've heard it throughout our lives. Oh, yeah. It's a very odd because the thing is, he does talk about loads of kinds of state intervention, just like Adam Smith does. He talks about rules for weights and measures. He even talks about basic minimum income, by the way. He's a believer in a, in a minimum income. But he doesn't give you any sense. It's like one or other of these things has to be true. The slippery slope stuff or all these bits that you're talking about where you have to interfere. But you can't just present both of them and not explain to us how they go together. It's also very simplistic, right? Because unlike his sort of fetishized view of the market, this religious view of it, the truth is the market is a man-made creation. And the way it functions is man-made. You know, what is a limited liability company, right? What is a law against slavery or child labor? You know, we decide how the market operates. And he sort of doesn't really seem to recognize that. The other problem he has is empirical, <laughs> which is... The, you know, he's there. He's looking at the US. The US is implementing the New Deal at the time, but it doesn't seem to be sliding into totalitarianism. As the 20th century yeah. goes on, you see the same. You see Chile on the one hand, big free market, absolute totalitarian rule with human rights abuses. And you see Sweden on the other. Interferes in the market all the time. Doesn't have totalitarianism. But they constantly thought, that you know, Roosevelt and Attlee, you know, they were just on the verge of totalitarianism. Right. When clearly if you studied what they were doing and what they were saying, what they believed... That wasn't going to be the case. Keynes is one of my favorite. He he's very good at drive-by shootings. Keynes and he does one of my favorites. He reads the book when he's on a boat going to the U.S. Where he's obviously one of the guys that's really pushing through the New Deal, and he writes to um Hayek, "Your greatest danger ahead is the probable practical failure of the application of your philosophy in the U.S. in a fairly extreme form." This <laughs> is another very nice way of saying you're going to look like a fucking madman when the U.S. doesn't fall into yeah. totalitarianism despite huge interventions in the market. Well, fun fact: this is maybe a way of the infamous 1945 election broadcast in which Winston Churchill suggested that Clement Attlee's Labour government would require some kind of Gestapo yes. to yeah. institute economic reforms, and that came straight from Hayek. Oh, my God. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you mean speaking to him or just taking um, it from a book? I can't or? remember whether it was from reading Hayek or from talking to Hayek, but like that Hayek oh my God. Yeah, is responsible for that kind of absurd <laughs> hyperbole. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense when yeah, you yeah. say it. I just didn't know yeah, it could yeah. be that direct. Like. So basically what happens is Mont Pelerin society sets up in 1947. And then you have this long period of about 20 years of, I suppose, what we call the sort of post-war consensus, mm -hmm. economic consensus in Britain, America, many parts of Europe. And the neoliberals are on the fringes. And even some Tories called them nutters, like literally, that's the word. I'm not paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. So, can I just say one thing? I mean, there's a beautiful quote by his son from this period, from Hayek's son. His son says, his ideas were not fashionable. Nobody seemed to listen to him. Nobody seemed to agree with him. He was alone. Right. And that's basically decades of time. But what Hayek, Hayek learned from the Fabian Society, which set up the London School of Economics, that you have to build institutions to advance your ideas. You build a bridge between mm. academia and policymaking. So they started setting up think tanks, the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK, the American Enterprise Institute in America hence the name, which turns sort of economists into, into activists. In his book, Masters of the Universe, Hayek, Friedman and the Birth of Neoliberal Politics, Daniel Stedman Jones calls them ideological entrepreneurs. Huh. And they're playing the long game here. And they're sort of intellectual HQs, the University of Chicago Economics Department run by Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. and Gary Becker. And one student compared it to the appeal of Marxism neoliberalism they oh said, wow simplicity together with apparent logical completeness idealism combined with radicalism oh that's so interesting it seemed like a wonderful 
elegant, simple idea that explains what's wrong and how to fix it. And we see a kind of, I suppose, an Americanization of neoliberalism. It starts off as rather European. Mm, Austrian, really. Yeah. And then it, maybe a translanticization of it. So in Britain, mm. the leading neoliberal MP, Pellerin member, was Enoch Powell, huh. better known for racism <laughs> and Euroscepticism. <laughs> They loved it. Friedman loved him, said he was the best MP in Britain. Oh, wow. And he was supported by journalists like Peter, Peter Jay and William Rees-Mogg. So these were the kind Jesus of Christ. the shock troops there. Mm. And in America, what happens is that you get this sort of fusionism from, from William F. Buckley, the conservative, mm-hmm. you know, godfather of modern American conservatism. He's not really neoliberal, but he merges it with Ayn Rand-style libertarianism anti-communism and social conservatism. Mm -hmm. And so you see this in Barry Goldwater in 1964, very right-wing, famous for being like a Cold War hawk and very Mm. anti-communist and all that. Also very neoliberal, even though you wouldn't have used that word. And because America was very hospitable to basically this anti-tax, anti-regulation vision. So in America, these think tanks and institutes had a lot of money Mm. behind them. So obviously a lot of these kind of old school robber barons. So the idea was, as Hayek says in his essay, Intellectuals, it is no exaggeration to say that once the more active part of the intellectuals has been converted to a set of beliefs, the process by which these become generally accepted is almost automatic and irresistible. These intellectuals are the organs which modern society has developed for spreading knowledge and ideas, and it is their convictions and opinions which operate as the sieve through which all new conceptions must pass before they can reach the masses. Wow, he's quite... I didn't actually, you know, I never really realised that politically he was so... Well, I guess that's quite quite smart, I guess, is the right... It's it's a 20-year process of basically legitimising these ideas, spreading them, training people at the University of Chicago and elsewhere, so that when things start to go wrong for the post-war consensus in the late 60s, they're ready. So this brings me to quite a famous quote by Milton Friedman that I got from The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, but it crops up all over the place. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. Oh, wow. And whatever you say about neoliberals it's a bit like what you'd have to say about eurosceptics right it's just like they put in the hard yards Mm. and they kind of they laid the ground when they were completely on the outs and then so 20 years later or something something happens Mm. and oh here they are they're ready and it's always just lying around (laughs) so that neoliberalism is lying around Mm. so then of course this crisis happens starting in the in the late 60s, real sort of strains on, on economies really kicking up. In the 70s, you have stagflation, labor strife, oil shocks, the Vietnam War, of course, the end of the gold standard, Bretton Woods, the 1976 bailout for the International Monetary Fund. Mm-hmm. The UK was in real trouble. And I think we've also talked about this in other episodes. Obviously, the 70s, pretty chaotic decade. <laughs> and the main message there is that the kind of Keynesian sort of fine-tuning, as it was described, wasn't working. And the people were basically, you know, chancellors, treasury secretaries were looking in their toolkit at what had worked and now it wasn't working. And who comes along with a new toolkit? It's the neoliberals. Because the thing is, the main thing that they always said, you should be worried about this, became a big problem. Yeah. And that was inflation. 
You know, if you've spent 20, 30 years going, you guys need to worry about inflation more, it was suddenly an inflationary problem. All those things that you've just mentioned, when it's militant trade unions or Vietnam, et cetera, or oil prices, they're all inflation drivers. You're paying more in wages, inflation yeah, yeah. goes up. You spend loads on military equipment, inflation goes up, so you're pumping money into the economy. And of course, oil, which when you drive up the price, drives up the price of everything yeah. because it's how you get stuff to places. So it felt like they'd been shown to be right all along. I mean, Hayek wins the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1974. Alongside a Keynesian, but they kind of forgot about that. And right, it right. was treated as this real stamp of approval. And he got up in his speech and basically pronounced the death of, of intervention in the market. He said, I regard it as fundamentally false and to act upon it as we now experience as very harmful. Because it's, it's, it's narratively very weird. Because basically the 50s and 60s are the quiet decades, mm. you know, where they're sort of working behind the scenes. And they basically just had those two major think tanks. For 20 years. Suddenly so in the 70s, you've got the Adam Smith Institute, the Center for Policy Studies, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation. And what's terrifying is these are all suddenly names that we deal with all the time. All the time. Yeah, we've yeah. all heard of these. They're really sort of gearing up. And what surprised me narratively, I suppose, is that the basic understanding is like Thatcher and Reagan come in and sort of commence the neoliberal era. But actually, it starts not ideologically, but pragmatically earlier. So you get Callaghan, mm -hmm. late Prime Minister uh, James Callaghan. His switch from curbing unemployment to curbing inflation and cutting spending is a huge sort of statement. He goes almost like so Keynesianism is, is over. And President Jimmy Carter appoints Paul Volcker as head of the Federal Reserve, who immediately hikes interest rates by, I think, 20%. It's the Volcker shock. The Volcker shock. It's, it's, it's described by a German chancellor as the level of interest rates not seen since the birth of Christ. Oh, my God. And obviously, Vol Volcker stays on under Reagan. But, you know, he is appointed by a Democrat. It is a Labour government. Yeah, yeah, that just, yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that they considered themselves neoliberalisms and that they suddenly were kind of like, you know, reading out bits of the road served them to each other. Mm -hmm. But there was a sense that, that, that neoliberalism's breakthrough was not the utopianism. I almost feel it's utopianism marketed as common sense. It was like... It doesn't say, here is this new ideology which involves, you know, which, which, which makes a godhead of the market. Mm. It's like, look, you're in the shit. Your old toolkit isn't working. Here are these new ideas. And guess what? You know, I mean, you can argue about in what sense they work, in which sense they don't. They certainly make things happen. And suddenly it seems like vindication. Well, they do kill inflation. Right, if you raise interest rates, you will kill inflation as long as you're remorseless about it. But think back to that thing of Hayek and Keynes, one, you know, emotionally affected by inflation, the other emotionally affected by employment. Right now, you strip out that second part. So employment doesn't matter. Hmm. We will pay any price. And the Volcker shock, that rising of interest rates, has a price. Right, like, that is the creation of the Rust Belt in the US. You know, this whole decimated domestic industry, really, that we then start talking about when Trump gets elected as, oh, these people yeah. have just been left behind for 30 years. That's where that starts, okay? You look to the UK, you look at like sort of traditional industrial centres, Manchester, Liverpool, Sheffield, mining areas in England and Wales, unemployment rising to over 3 million people, 12% of the workforce, by the way. And that end of the factory job as this sort of mechanism for social mobility. You know, you're well paid, you've got a factory job, you're well paid, skilled labor, you know, your kids go to university, they might yeah. become a doctor, etc. That happens again with those shocks. There's, there's other reasons for it. There's increased competition, particularly from Asia. There's, you could say the pound is over, sterling is overvalued at that period. But really, 
that Volker shock is a scar that then is the birthplace for the kind of seeping wound of Brexit and Trump. I mean, not to reveal what my opinion are on right. Brexit and Trump, but, <laughs> but ultimately that's origin story stuff for, for Brexit and Trump is, is really in the creation of that decimated industry. Well, for the, for the neoliberals, there were lots of prices you had to pay. And one of them was inequality. I mean, I've seen it described as a necessary evil, but I almost thought they didn't even see it as evil. Mm-hmm. It was just like, well, mm-hmm. this is just, that's what the market needs. And, you know, these sorts of decimated mining towns or rust belt towns. It's just like, well, that's what the market needs. You know, in a competitive market, there are winners and there are losers. And there's really not much you can do about the losers. <laughs> and, and that's where this kind of this ruthlessness comes in. So what's, you know, so what sort of starts with a sense of like, how can we get inflation under control? Just seems to then get established during the 80s is all of the stuff that we think of as neoliberalism, right? So it's tax cuts, spending cuts, deregulation, privatization, control of the money supply, although weirdly sort of monetarism is not what people talk about so much anymore, even though it was huge then, and importing market mechanisms into public service provision, you know, trickle-down economics yeah. of all of these ideas, you know, selling off council houses as part of that. Everything is kind of like fully established. And, and so in a very short space of time, they've gone from being on the fringes to like the new normal. What's amazing is you could see at any moment how the theory fails if you choose to look, right? And this comes down to that view of humans as economic units. Because according to the theory, it's like, okay, fine, so you've lost your job in mining. Look, there's all this money on Wall Street and Silicon Valley and the city of London. Just go retrain to be a banker or, you know. Like, and of course, that's not how it works. No. Right? People don't want to leave their communities. It's very hard to retrain people once they reach a certain age anyway. It's just not how it works. That's not how humans operate. But you've got nothing else. Your theory just says, oh, we're just units. They bounce around to go bounce into the more profitable bit rather than there should be state intervention to actually try and help these communities as they suffer the ravages. Because we should also point out, I mean, in in the name of, I don't want to use the word balance, but you did have to deal with inflation. You cannot allow levels of inflation as we were seeing in the 70s. Like that will ruin people's lives as well. No, there was an economic crisis. I mean, obviously Callahan and Dennis Healy, they weren't going, they weren't going to do this. For ideological reasons. Right. Like there was a desperation. Yeah, there was. Exactly. But then you decide, are you going to do it with a sense of humanity? Are you going to care about employment? And, you know, right. or are you just or are you fundamentally an ideologue who will just do anything to slash that? Thing? This is where I think the sort of fundamental con of neoliberalism is that it is a belief system and, and a political system sold as economic science. Mm-hmm. And that there are certain items in the neoliberal toolkit which could be useful which could be really useful in specific areas to deal with specific problems. But then it was almost sold as like, well, you kind of got to have the whole th- the same thing, yeah. the whole thing. So if you want to kind of fix it, it's almost like, well, if you want to fix inflation, like now in 1978 or whatever, you will unfortunately have to throw <laughs> all these human beings onto the scrap heap <laughs> for decades to come. Like that, that's what seems really sort of shocking to me. And it was like, well, I mean, if we're talking slippery slope, I mean, that's a slippery slope. Surely it didn't have to to be that way. Guys, the point of origin story is to provide independent-minded and really rigorously researched information about the world around you that isn't susceptible to the kind of knee-jerk cynicism that you may or may not see on social media sites that you're staring at during your working day. If you want more of that kind of thing, if you want to support us, do go to our Patreon page. We've got various tiers of subscription and various goodies that you can get by doing so. You'll make me and Dorian particularly happy and you'll give us some justification for the fact that we haven't seen our family for three or four months.
And hopefully there will be a, a bit of a community vibe, a sort of club vibe. We're sharing ideas. You're feeding back to us, uh, suggesting topics that we might discuss in future, recommending reading materials, documentaries, podcasts, so on about stuff we've already discussed and make it a bit of a two-way street. We'd enjoy that. Just search Patreon Origin Story Podcast to find out more. Let's talk about Milton Friedman a bit, because at this point, it's not really Hayek, really, as the talisman of this stuff. It's really Friedman. I mean, like I say, Chicago from the Chicago School. And just talk about his economics, because this is the thing. He's actually really different to Hayek. He does believe you can understand and influence the market. Right. And he does actually believe in a, a different kind of market intervention, and that's called monetarism, which is essentially that you maintain a gradual increase in the money supply. The money supply, what we mean by that is the total amount of money in an economy, cash, currency, bank deposits. Now, by the way, incidentally, it's really hard to do this because, you know, every time you go to like a sofa shop and they're like, oh, you can pay in monthly installments, that's kind of an increase in the money supply, mm. right, by the creation of credit. So actually how you do it is difficult, to say the least. And when it's been tried, this has been an absolute disaster. But in his view, you would have almost an algorithm. Almost you could just set it up and just let it run of how much the money supply would increase. It's a small amount all the time. Mm. And that's it. You don't do anything else. You just leave the machine thrumming along and that's it. No more intervention. But you do have that bit of intervention. So their economics are very different. They spent most of the time arguing about it, but their politics were basically identical. It's all slippery slope, stayed out of the market, no regulation, you know, you know, hands off. Well, he becomes this sort of lionized figure, mm. Friedman, didn't he? I mean, he was somebody who a celebrity economist. Yeah. And he's very charismatic. It's worth pointing out when you see a speech with him. You feel like mm. he, he feels quite sage-like and, and incredibly, he, he is a charismatic guy. But what we're seeing here, and this is where, again, I feel that this kind of idea that it is a science, or even that it's a dogma pretending to be a science, is, mm. it, is in itself a con, right? Because it turned out some of the values that they had or expressed early on didn't really count at all. So monopolies were meant to be bad, mm. bad for competition. Turned out they were fine, <laughs> after all. <laughs> There seemed to be that every time their principal ran up against what rich people wanted, the principal was disposable. Also, the fundamental idea, all freedoms flow from economic freedom. Collectivism and authoritarianism are bad. Except authoritarianism is fine if it delivered the right economics. Mm -hmm. Now, I think Naomi Klein overstates her case in The Shock Doctrine. I sort of reread some of it recently, and, and I feel like she has a thesis, and she's connecting it a little to... Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, doggedly there. But it is true that the first sort of full-fat neoliberal experiment was in Chile under Pinochet, where economists from the Chicago School, who had actually been training Chilean economists since the 50s, were given free reign, even though it was enormously apparent that political freedom was absent. Mm -hmm. Klein calls this sort of disaster capitalism, the exploiting of a crisis. Again, I, I, don't th I think perhaps she overdoes the point, but it, it is definitely true that they were they were seeking these sort of opportunities and yeah you know, for these sort of laboratories abroad and a lot of time what they did was they broke countries and they and they kept on doing that you know often not you know you can say did they break britain did they break america well you know sort of arguably but i'm talking about countries that were really you know really put on the rack by this neoliberal dogma which appeared to kind of just completely override all these other values that they that they claimed were important. You see, I think this is that moment that you're talking about is central. I think it's the moment of moral reality for what neoliberalism became. Now, Hayek is a liberal. These guys come 
from liberalism. Mm. They are supposed to believe in individual freedom and freedom from the state. What's extraordinary to me then, I'm probably a bit, I don't know whether people find, because the thing is I I was partly brought up in Chile. I was in Chile during these sort of periods and like, you know, in in the early 80s. I was a kid, right? I didn't really know what was going on around me. But my first memories of life are in this country at this time. Hayek goes to Chile on two occasions. He goes in 1977, he goes again in 1981 when the Mount Pelerin Society holds its regional meeting in the country. (sighs) He gives it a stamp of approval. He never criticizes Pinochet at any point. He says this, this is a quote. This is the most sick. I mean, I'd rather like Hayek, you know, as a guy, but this is just a moral abyss, this quote. I have not been able to find a single person, even in much maligned Chile, who did not agree that personal freedom was much greater under Pinochet than it had been under Allende. And I think what you're seeing there is is a couple of things. The first one is where that fetishization of the market gets you, where this economic reductionism Mm. gets you, that nothing really matters anymore. You know, it's not even this sort of equation of economic and therefore you get these other freedoms. It's just that they haven't talked about those other freedoms for years. Yeah. You know, it just they don't really matter to them. I mean, they never speak about it. All they care about is the price point, the price point, that supply and demand mechanism. That's the only real freedom they give a shit about. The other is, and you see it in the relationship they have with Thatcher and with Reagan. You know, Thatcher at this point, it's obviously nothing compared to what's going on in Chile, but it's still pretty bad in its own terms. It's got a politicized, militarized police force attacking minors, right? You know, she's passing regulations against gay people. Where is the liberal outrage from these guys? There, it doesn't exist. And Why? And I think this this is really where you get something key here, that they don't have any structural assessment of limitations to freedom in society through racism, through sexism, through economic disadvantage, through mental health issues. None of that. None of that's there. It's just basically the market, the market, the market. What you've got by the end of the 80s is what's called the Washington Consensus. And it is a kind of the neoliberalism has infiltrated and taken over. I mean, it dominates the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank. And it means that when countries are in trouble, they are obliged to, if they want a bailout, they have to institute neoliberal reforms. Mm. You also have this incredibly flawed idea that, that democracy flows from the free market. You know, Russia, you know, the real kind of shocks that happened, economic shocks happened to Russia in the 90s. And again, it was this idea, well, this is, you know, it's tough medicine, but this mm-hmm. was certainly on the path of democracy. It did not. It did not. And yet another one of this kind of like neoliberalism sort of immunity to failure, like all ideologies, I think. Mm-hmm. It just, it is incapable of going, well, clearly clearly this approach in whether that be in Russia or Chile where in fact it was reversed under Pinochet I think after the 1982 the Latin American kind of financial crisis there it was kind of rolled back but they never fucking you know the thing that they thought was so important that they would put up with torture Mm. they would give torture their blessing It, it didn't even work that well but it didn't matter. And they just moved on mm-hmm. and they kept instituting it all the way around the world. You know, I think that's where you can get most sort of angry about this and most see its failings. By comparison, I mean, it's what you say, it's a sort of Blair Clinton, what third way neoliberalism. You know, this and believe in the importance of market efficiency and choice in the, in the public sector and kind of opening, you know, how that affects areas like education mm-hmm. and, and health. And of course, just rampant financial deregulation. Yeah. Where even kind of good social Democrats like Gordon Brown are just quite complicit 
in the financialization mm-hmm. where basically money is just being created out of money like it's not doing anything it's not useful it's not like some fuck it. it's not some mining town has been turned into a kind of like thriving collateralized debt obligation hub <laughs> you know it's just money for the sake of for sake of money and that of course is pretty atrocious but it's nothing compared to of course what is happening to these other countries that are forced yes. to reforms that they don't actually want and which often do not work so it's constantly breaking its own promises i think and worst perhaps showing my hand here my precious neutrality <laughs> uh, has been compromised is i think what neoliberalism does to all areas of life i mean thatcher famously said economics are the method the object is to change the soul now i don't think she was particularly trying to express neoliberalism's creed there but it kind of is that because it turns life into a market and everything is a competition yes. and there are winners and losers and if you're in a loser you have no one to blame but yourself and if you're a winner well done you have nobody to thank but yourself yes it is it is presumed to be a kind of the underpinning of all human activity. Yeah. And that, I think, is what went a lot of time when people, particularly younger people now, talk about neoliberalism. It's that. It's that sense of, of how it can, it can affect you in, in everyday interactions, in small aspects of office culture. You know, then it's that. It's that sort of pervasive, the way it sunk itself so deep down into human existence. And that, I think, is where it becomes, you know, really, really rather sinister. If you do not believe that economics is the foundation of human existence. Well, where's your belonging, right? Like the whole social element of life is sort of cut away. Even if you think of welfare, of how we help one another when we're out, that's gone. Your sense of community decimated when an industry goes. There's no sense that the community has any meaning in its own terms. It's only economic. And if the economic case is over, then why why are you all still here? You know, you basically turn people's sense of identity into, you know, do you like Pepsi or Coke? You know, do you prefer Xbox or PlayStation? And you see those identities grow at that period. People were intensely arguing about this sort of stuff as if that does mean something to them. You know, something really profound. You strip humanity into these atomized units. And then funnily enough, it turns out, well, actually, that doesn't really do the job. People want more Mm. meaning than that. And then again, I think when you look at populism, when you look at the 2016 stuff, and when you look at what happens on the left with identity politics, it is a break away from that really stale view of humanity of like, no, if if you're saying I've got that, I'm going to find it in the nation. I'm going to find it in my race. I'm going to find it in my gender. You know, any way you can find it. Some sense of belonging that's more impressive and deeper than that offered by this market reductionism. You just want to be a commodity. And which is how they're treated. You know, the whole, the whole thing is, is that workers are treated as commodities, disposable commodities. Natural resources are. I mean, this is why it's obviously appalling for the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, because again, the market doesn't care about fucking sustainability. And I like the phrase that, that people like George Soros, Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman, I'm not quite sure who came up with it in the first place, but they all use it, market fundamentalism. Right. So it gives it mm-hmm. that sense of a kind of a religious yes. dogma. Krugman says, laissez-faire absolutism contributed to an intellectual climate in which faith in markets and disdain for government often trumps the evidence, which I like because it gives it a sort of post-truth element. Yeah. You know, it doesn't need to be true. It was presented as the basic truth of human interaction, but it's obviously not objectively true. It is a belief system. And I feel that actually what you see, we see it now, it now is in tech. And, and this kind of like modification of everything, the marketization of everything, but with this kind of utopian gauze over it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And again, a kind of breaking up of people's sense of belonging. I mean, it seems quite bad when we <laughs> when we put it like that. What I wanted to ask you is, what is the state of neoliberalism? Because I mean, David Harvey's brief history of neoliberalism, it's a left wing take on it, came out in 2005. It ends with a prediction of a serious financial crisis in the next five years. This <laughs> prediction was made by Paul Volcker. Oh, well, because well, it's important to mention that Paul Volcker was, was generally a decent, mm. apart from the Volcker shock, which yeah. is the thing he's most famous for and the most terrible thing he ever did. He was a decent Democrat and, uh, you know, progressive. But, and, so, yeah. so obviously it did happen in 2008. And this was a shock like 1929. And what happened to neoliberalism? Is it alive? Is it dead? Is it a zombie? Like, what happened when it was seen, or certainly financialization failed catastrophically? Yeah, it failed. What's most important, I think, on the terms that it itself set, right? Like you have Alan Greenspan, classic neoliberal, saying before the crash, the market stabilizing regulatory forces should gradually displace many cumbersome, increasingly ineffective government structures. In other words, let the market regulate itself. Mm by risk assessment, and you're thinking, I don't want to you know, have a bad investment, and this will just all work out just fine. But then this extraordinary thing happens. There is no moment of reckoning for mm. neoliberalism. This will n- blow my mind until the day I die. That instead, what was the central attack against Labour from George Osborne during the 2010 general election? That Labour didn't fix the roof yeah, yeah. when the sun was shining. That is the most extraordinary thing to me. That your whole worldview just collapsed in front of your face. And what do you blame? You, you blame the state again, just yeah. like Friedman did yeah, yeah. for the Great Depression. The same process again and again and again. You go, oh, it's the public sector's fault. This had nothing to do with the public sector. It was a free market failure blamed on the private sector. And then you bring up the old Adam Smith balance of budgets at the state level. We've got to pay back. We can't have all these debts. This is impossible. Austerity and start shredding the public sector all over again. The extraordinary thing is every failure of neoliberalism is treated as a reason to do neoliberalism even harder. That's it. Real neoliberalism hasn't been tried. But I don't think... But the thing is, of course, people... It loses legitimacy with people because they know that something isn't right and that perhaps in the 80s and the 90s or people who remember the kind of the real crisis of the 70s would think, you know, maybe this is kind of working. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if you actually talk about does neoliberalism work, it's like sometimes, but a lot of the kind of the growth in sort of world wealth has come from China, which is a particular blend again not so liberal in in other areas um in asia you know south korea you know it did produce a lot of wealth not so much in latin america not so much in eastern europe like it, it's sort of it's checkered right it's not like it always fails but what i object to is the fact that it claims to always succeed mm-hmm. you know i don't even know if you can the thing is keynesianism took on board we did need to be more vigilant about inflation. Mm. And you do that, you pass it over to the central bank, you go, you should be checking for this alongside employment, you know? And that's, to be honest, a pretty minor quibble for a a series of financial crises in the 70s that were quite hard to predict and quite hard to diagnose at the time. That is not a major... I mean, to me, you fit that into a system that still says, right, state or the market, what should be doing what at which given time. You don't just say, it's always the market. So even where... It's sort of like, you know, even a stop to watch tells the right time twice a day, even when you suddenly do have inflation running out of control. I don't really think it is a victory for these guys because these guys aren't really engaging in any kind of sensible adult conversation about how an economy should be run no. in the first place. Well, I agree with Joseph Stiglitz, who says unfettered markets often not only do not lead to social justice, 
which we've discussed, but do not even produce efficient outcomes. Individuals and firms in the pursuit of their self-interest are not necessarily, or in general, led as if by an invisible hand to economic efficiency. Yeah, yeah. You know, now obviously, you know, he, he would say that because he disagrees with liberalism. But I mean, I think it's the failures. And again, it does remind me of people that could not accept, people on the, on the, on the far left who could not accept the failure of, of Soviet communism and had to make excuses. And it seems like the same thing now, only there hasn't been the great discrediting. That should be in the Berlin Wall moment, mm-hmm. 2008. And yet it wasn't. And yet most people don't really believe that it's kind of working. And if you pointed out all the ways in which neoliberalism infects the language and the mechanisms of everyday life and your work or, or you know, your interaction with public services or public space, you know, most people would say, actually, no, I'm really quite unhappy with this yeah. aspect, this aspect, this aspect. So it, it sort of failed, but it has not been seen to have failed or at least not by people in power, maybe because it didn't fail for them. Because I think they'll never, I just think they'll never accept it. I honestly think it is. I think you're right to think of it as a religion that is sort of non-falsifiable for them. And yet, it's funny to end up wanting to use a quote from Marx, but it does feel like it just creates its own gravediggers. Because you can pretend as much as you like that people are just these atomized economic mm. units. You can pretend that you can make this work as, on, an, on an economic basis, but it doesn't work. It keeps on collapsing, whether it's in the late 1920s or whether it's, you know, the late noughties. It always collapses. And when it collapses, people seek alternatives. And in that seeking of alternatives is wrapped up among the economic questions, a sense of identity and wanting something more than is offered. And that is where we are now. Now, you know, if you're on the liberal left, progressive, whatever you want to call it, centrist, you're probably not happy about Brexit and Trump and all of that. But you know what the thing is? The neoliberals shouldn't be happy either. Because every time these guys come out, even if it's Johnson saying, right, well, we're going to start interfering, we're going to build these industries, we're going to do... Well, that's not their agenda either. You know, on that thing, you've got your own gravedigger there and you've created him again. You've done this before. You've done it again now. So over and over, the fundamental failures of the project itself are why it keeps on coming undone under its own terms. Well, I like, I like the zombie diagnosis, which I think I picked up from William Davis. He writes very well about neoliberalism. You know, that, that actually it's lost ground, mm-hmm. like in all those ways, you could see sometimes in ways we find very sinister for other reasons, sometimes right wing populism. But, you know, neoliberalism has lost ground and yet it hasn't been replaced. Mm-hmm. It hangs around. That's so true. And, and its mindset hangs around. Just before we, we finish, what I want to ask is, I suppose, going back to this, this idea of, of the, how the word is used. Do you think that it has, at least on the left, sort of poisoned liberalism itself? Do you wish that it has had this, this different... I mean, neoconservatism is generally disliked by the same people that dislike conservatism. Mm-hmm. But does neoliberalism sort of tainted, even though it is in itself like a travesty? I mean, I wonder why you feel uneasy about the word beyond maybe fearing that it's a bit sort of jargony. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely do think it succeeded in doing that. Also, I think that liberals should take the blame for that. Because I, I remember those periods. I remember the early Blair years. I remember how we would sit around and you'd have good liberal people going, look, we're just going to have to take it on the economics. You know, we've just kind of lost that fight. You know, and what we can do is we can work on fixing, you know, tolerance in society and gay rights and, you know, right, all, all that stuff. So that was, and there's no point pretending, oh, it was always, we're always, people often were not fighting that battle. Okay, mm. And so I do think it got tainted by it. Absolutely, it got tainted by it. And that really the recognition that comes now is that the that other, which the reason I scoffed at the very beginning of this of a form of traditional liberalism, I mean, 
the left-wing interventionist, more radical version of liberalism is right there at the very beginning, whether you go back to the English Civil War or in Adam Smith itself. You know, it's always there. This is all traditional liberalism. But that more left-wing needed to come forward to challenge this stuff and must do it now in order to distance itself from it. I think I'd be intrigued to see the, of, a, of a sort of more post-neoliberalism version of capitalism because I do think for people, you know, uh, of our age and younger, you almost feel that neoliberalism is capitalism. Mm -hmm. it's almost hard it's hard to imagine a version of capitalism i mean obviously some people don't want any version of capitalism and they being full-on socialism which is totally legitimate but i mean there should be something which is was was something that existed you know my parents were growing up it Mm -hmm. was like yeah and and still exists in certain you know certain countries like it's it's more sort of social democracy and more state intervention and and it's almost like if you go back and it's just like you didn't have to do this you didn't have to deregulate the banks to that extent and let them fucking destroy the world economy (laughs) but you didn't have to do that that wasn't part of it and there's so much which this whole package it's like you got this whole bundle of shit that you didn't have to accept that has come to define sort of all capitalism Mm -hmm. in our lifetimes which i mean you have to say i mean that is an astonishing achievement by Mm -hmm. these people you know who met in pomp pelerin in 1947 friendless and alone. Look, I mean, if you want to find a good thing about it, it is proof positive that a small group of people can change the world if they want to. It's just next time, I rather hope they do it in a better way. Thank you so much for listening to the sixth and last episode of Origin Story for this season. Ian, how have you found this uh, experiment? Shattering. (laughs) Very tiring. Dismaying. (laughs) Sort of crushing various existential crises. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess you know what I would have if we hadn't done the episode on woke. I think I would have a more positive wrap up because it would be like, look, ultimately anything you dig into it and you find this stuff. I and mean, one of the things, you know, the thing that got me in the McCarthy episode, re- especially reading about him, was. You know, you find that there's actually some okay qualities there every so often, right? I mean, we didn't bring a lot of them up because we mm. had to keep to an hour and I don't want to spend it praising him. But even then you find like there are positive qualities there. You know, you do neoliberalism like today. So like, these guys weren't venal. They weren't self-interested, you know, as most of the criticisms of them would, would be. They, they were just kind of ideologues and lots of them were quite honorable in their thing. And so it's that constant thing of whenever you really look into something, you will find shades of grey, unless you're reading Piers Morgan's book on woke, and then you'll give up faith in the human race. What I found quite rewarding was constructing a narrative that perhaps wasn't that familiar to me. So particularly in the in the case of centrism, because it's such a moving target, mm-hmm. having to put together a kind of chronology where the word just seems to be mo- is constantly like flicking about. Um, and having something that kind of made sense, where I thought I was learning. There's certain things like conspiracy theories, which I feel like I've been studying, um, you know, for like 25 years. And then there are these other ones like centrism, neoliberalism, where I felt like I was sort of, you know, educating educating myself. And then, of course, one of the best ways to, to clarify things in your own mind is when you have to present it, you know, or in an article or in a podcast. And because you're like, okay, like, what's the story here? What are the characters? What are the turning points? And even on something like superheroes where, you know, God, I've been reading comic books since I was you know, 10. Mm. I mean, not with the same regularity <laughs> as when I was 10. But, um, 
I'm reading, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I'm reading a lot more. <laughs> <than> <laughs> when you were 10. When I was 10. But, you know, looking at superheroes in this very historical context, and again, looking for those turning points, and it's just like, why was that? What were the politics of Superman? You know, why did the kind of initial Marvel revolution mean so much? What were Stan Lee's politics? All of these things were, were obviously what I want to convey to listeners, which is, like, isn't this, isn't this stuff fascinating? And isn't it full of um, things which challenge, receive wisdom? Mm-hmm. Things that, like you say, and people that are more complicated than you think and little kind of nuggets that you haven't come across before. And that's like, for me, I mean, that's why I, I, that's why I read. You know, that's why I read nonfiction. That's why we want to do this podcast mm-hmm. was to try and get not just to bring clarity to these words and also hang out with you for an hour. Um, but, you know, to sort of, I suppose, make, make, you know, convey the excitement of these histories because, they're you know, they these are big issues. These are big, dynamic and sometimes world changing ideas and arguments and so there is a kind of real, even when like the baddies are winning, which it turns out happens quite a lot in, his, <laughs> in history, it's, you know, it, it's, it's hugely energizing. You know what I've loved is actually the linkages. Like it was halfway through researching the comic stuff on the comics code that I realized, oh, shit, this is exactly the same time as McCarthy. And what's happening with McCarthy aimed towards like, mm-hmm. the upper levels of society is basically happening with comics aimed at the lower levels of society at pretty much the same time, presumably out of the same nervousness, that same kind of terror of moral collapse and national decline. And there, that sort of gives you a like this, this sense of history that feels very different. It's not all these isolated bits. There's actually the same stuff playing into itself in, in waves in quite a comprehensible kind of way. Yeah, it, it feels more panoramic because a lot of time we're going okay how are people responding to totalitarianism to the second world war to the cold war um to a particular to a moral panic to the crisis of the 70s you know and you do get drawn back to certain like the the tractor beam of these certain hinge moments in history and you go okay right well i can look at this from the point of view of a neoliberal economist or i could look at it from the point of view of a left-wing politician or a screenwriter or a comic book publisher mm-hmm. and I'm going to have a completely different story and but and yet and yet they overlap and that's I suppose one of the one of the things that fascinates me about history is all the overlapping and you're going you can go down one path and someone else can go down another path and actually there's all these connections and the format of this season I think has allowed us um to, to be quite surprised by these connections. Uh, well, thanks for listening with us, guys. If you want to email us, we are at originstory at podmasters.co.uk. I almost forgot what it was then. Check out our show notes where we talk about the books that we've been reading and what we think of them. And if you look back up the list, you'll be able to see them for all the previous episodes as well. Cheerio. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production.